and 46 of the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. I, uh, I keep encouraging our membership to consider bringing their own Bible to church. It's good to have your own Bible because you'll get more familiar with it. You'll start to know where things are. You won't need someone to tell you what page it's on. You'll be able to find it. That means, again, it's yours. You really want to think of your Bible like a sword for your mind. Now, a sword is a fine thing if you need to defend yourself against someone with a sword. These days, we have different types of warfare. But in the ancient world, a sword would be what you would have to have self-defense. Well, the Bible is the way you defend your mind against the devil, the old evil foe. He likes to shoot fiery arrows. He likes to attack with lies. And if you are not prepared with the armor of God that the scriptures will give you, your mind is under assault and you don't even know it. You can't swing a sword if you don't know how to use it. You're likely to hurt yourself. And so again, having your own Bible, bringing it to church, opening it up, looking at it, and then maybe making a note on one of those blank cards that we put in the pew there for you as well will help you take that word and put it in your mind and in your heart as opposed to having it go in one ear and out the other. St. James tells us that when that happens, when it goes in one ear and out the other, you're like a person who looks at a mirror and says, oh, I look pretty good. You go away, you forget who you are. You don't really know what you look like. You don't know how to stand. So you're going to be, again, ashamed, afraid, not confident. Well, the word is here to be a mirror that not only makes you aware of your sin and so you how you have no confidence before God, but quite more than that, makes you aware that God no longer cares about that in that he has killed that in Jesus Christ. But he has taken your shame, your sin, your weakness, your fears, and he has put it all to death in the body of his only son. And that to vindicate this fact, he is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. That single son rose from the grave on the third day as the gospel, the story of God's salvation, which is a historical fact in order to give you the confidence to stand today face down the devil in every single way that he attacks you. Again, with your mind and your heart sharpened by the word of God. Now, all of that's without actually getting to Romans at all, which again starts on page 946. Paul's point in this chapter will be about the sufficiency of the word of God. It will be about how hearing this word about Jesus is the thing that distinguishes you from the rest of the unbelieving world. It will also be in the middle of this section where Paul is wrestling with the question, what about the Jews? Which means, did the word of God fail? It's not just, are the Jews saved too? But it is, didn't God promise to save the Jews? Didn't he give them the covenant? Didn't he give them the ark? Didn't he give them great and precious promises? How can they have rejected Christ and be cut off? Again, chapter 9 through 11 are dealing with this entire question. The short answer of it is because they didn't believe. All Jews? No, not all Jews. Some did not believe. And by not believing, they rejected the very thing they claimed to be inheriting. So that question, what about the Jews, is really the question, what about unbelievers? What about those who hear the words of Jesus and say, that guy's not the son of God? What of those who hear the story of Jesus and say, no, that didn't happen? And the answer is that they're on a wide path 
that has many, the majority of humanity on it, and it leads to destruction. And Paul is going to begin in chapter 10, verse 1, by saying, look, it's not like I like that. It's not like I want them to be destroyed. That's not the point. Although, the mature Christian will recognize that on the day of judgment, when all the godless are cast into the fiery pit of hell, not one of us is going to say, that was wrong. We're all going to say, hallelujah, the smoke of the fire goes up forever and ever. It is good that God has destroyed the evil. But right now, while we still tarry in this veil of tears, our heart is being conditioned not toward justice, but toward mercy. Because that's what we lack. And that's who God is. That's why he's saving you. Is because of mercy. And so as Paul has received mercy, that's the spirit he confesses. Chapter 10, verse 1, saying to you, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. He means Jews. You can hear that meaning all who don't believe in Jesus. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's the heart of a Christian. It's not about you. And it's not just about Jesus for you singularly. It's about Jesus for you all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the heart desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, just as God himself, 1 Timothy, desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We also must believe that that won't happen. That God has so much self-control that he, Almighty, can want something and not get it. Why? Well, because he has other purposes and plans, some of them mysteriously hidden, which he will never reveal to us, because who are you, O Clay, to talk back to the potter? That was last week's text. And so we must acknowledge this is the fact. He wants all to be saved, not all will be saved. In the meantime, then, how do we reckon with this, and how do we continue to believe in our own salvation in such a way that we do not become puffed up and arrogant, so that we reject him when he speaks to us and also be cut off. That'll be chapter 11 next week. So in the meantime now, he says again, I care for my brothers according to the flesh, and he will even, verse 2, bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He's not saying that they have no piety. He's not even saying that they're evil beyond measure. But what he does say is that their zeal is not according to knowledge. You've heard this before, haven't you? I mean, so I'm a pastor, right? So, so sometimes I'm out and I meet people, and I don't usually be like, hi, I'm Jonathan, I'm a pastor. I kind of I hold back because as soon as someone finds out you're a pastor, they want to tell you what you should know. It's kind of weird. You would think it would be the other way, right? It's not. They want to tell you what, what you should know. And, and what I always should know, it seems, is how they believe in God. Oh, I believe in God. I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. I believe in God. I like God. Again, James says uh, the demons believe in God. It's not good news to them. So if you think just believing in God is good, I mean, you, you, you don't have knowledge, no matter how much zeal you have, and you're not saved by your zeal. Zeal's good when it has knowledge. So again, Paul bears witness that the Jewish people, and this does apply even to today, have zeal, just not the knowledge of who their God actually is. So that when Jesus Christ stood face to face with the representatives of the community that was there to receive him, they were his own. 
His own did not receive him. And this is, Paul is telling us in this whole section, according to God's plan, so that those who will believe shall believe. Again, a remnant shall be saved, not only from the Jew, but also from the rest of us. Because it's not as though being Jewish keeps you from being saved. Nothing about the bloodline of Abraham or Judah or David makes you less or more a man than anybody else. There is no partiality with God when it comes to who our ethnic backgrounds are. We are all standing before him, and in that we are all rightly condemned with our own works, but justly saved by the death and resurrection of our single brother, Jesus Christ. So, why did they not believe in him? What was the main thing that made them reject him? That's what verse 3 is. It's been the whole point of the whole book, grace versus works. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Ignorant of the fact that God is good in such a way that all goodness comes from him, they decided, finding themselves not good, to become good without God, to prove to God they didn't need him to be good. But that's the entire problem. In fact, if, if you'll bear with me on this, think about Adam in the garden, what he did. What he did was self-justify. The fall into sin is the attempt to be better than God made you. Let that sink in. God made him perfect. It is good. Oh, almost perfect. You need a woman. Now it's good. It's very good. Can't be better. Yeah, but maybe if I knew about evil, I'd be better. Okay, grabs the fruit. Now it's not better, but you see how it was an attempt to be better. Ignorant of the goodness of God, seeking to establish his own. He then finds himself without the goodness of God at all, because God will not share his glory. He's not going to let you create your own goodness. He wants to. He will give it to you, though. And this is the good news. That even when we had put ourselves in this wretched state, God sent his own son, born under the law, to redeem those us under the law. Yes? Somebody testify? Thank you. For Christ, then, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That means in Jesus now, no longer do you need to prove yourself to God. I confessed something on my Saturday show this week um, that I've really been wrestling with recently. And it's, it's coming to terms with the fact in my own heart, right? It's my own head, my own internal workings. Coming to terms with the fact that I'm always waiting for God to trick me and punish me. Like all my life decisions, not when I'm reading the Bible. You know, I know how to do this intellectually. But when I go out and I have to actually like make a life decision and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? I'm acting in my head as if I might just make the wrong mistake and then God's just going to smash me for it. That is sin. That is the heart of sin. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that that's just wrong. It's just wrong. That's not who God is. God's not waiting to smash you. He's waiting to watch you smash yourself sometimes. So you'll look up and he'll be like, hi, I'm here. Huh? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's not about what you do. If and when God ever should send discipline upon you, that is, he puts a thorn in your path so that you step on the thorn, it's not because he wants you to fall, it's because he wants you to find him. 
You cannot attain perfection by yourself, but Christ has attained it for you. And this is a promise to be received by faith, which is what he's going to keep saying here in a moment. But because he is writing to the Roman church, which is made up of a mixed ethnicity, that is of both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are a mixed ethnicity. I mean, that's like Greeks. It's like uh, you know, barbarians and all sorts of different groups from all over the world, especially in Rome. But he's proving to them that the God of the Old Testament is the God who is Jesus. So he's going to quote the Old Testament here. He says that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So he says Moses does teach that if you keep the commandments perfectly, you will live forever. This is true. But who did that? Well, only Jesus. Only Jesus has done that. But God also has in Moses another kind of righteousness. That's chapter 3 of Romans as well. Another kind of righteousness based on faith. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So the real covenant given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, don't ask yourself how you're going to get saved. Don't ask yourself how you're going to not die. Hear the word proclaimed, he is risen. It's in your heart, it's in your mouth, and you're already alive forever. Get used to it. You're immortal now. It's worth paying attention to. Especially, again, as you go out into a world filled with stories that are there to make you forget. To make you make decisions out of fear and shame. As opposed to decisions based upon your knowledge of the everlasting kingdom of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I said we would try to look at Deuteronomy a touch. So if you put a mark in your Bible where you're at, and find your way to page 172 if you got that pew Bible. You could also look in the bulletin if you want to. We're just going to touch on a couple of these verses that are the direct connection to what Paul just said. So we're going to look at chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. Again, Paul is quoting this to try to say to you, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. That means Yahweh. And I've said this before, I don't know how many listen to me, but that means when you find that giant capital word Lord in the Old Testament, that's Jesus 99% of the time, and the other times it's the Holy Spirit. But when you pray the Psalms then, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is your shepherd. You shall not want. Yeah. So Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one giving us these words here. And now Moses says for him, verse 11 of chapter 30, it's on the left side, bottom column of the page, left column, bottom part of the page. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. You know what that means, Lutherans? That means it's not law. He's not commandmenting you law. Not there. He is commanding you life. He is commanding you forgiveness. 
He is commanding you resurrection from the dead. It's not too hard for you because it's given to you. And as much as I absolutely adore the proper distinction between law and gospel, because it is a particularly glorious light for understanding who God is in the Holy Scriptures, we Lutherans have banged that drum so hard we don't know the distinction anymore. We just know the jargon. And with the jargon, we have made go away huge passages of Scripture, letting them be taken by what we kind of have as our enemies, but they're really our heterodox brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when they say, choose life that you may live, we say, oh, that's a misuse of Scripture. Well, it might be, but it's still true. The fact remains that if you do not choose to follow Jesus, knowing who he is, then you will follow your flesh to destruction. This isn't a moment of conversion for the Hebrews. This is a moment of conviction for the Hebrews. And your conviction is not too hard for you because it's given to you. So grab it, seize it, hold it, live with it. It's not too hard. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven, verse 12, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and bring it down for us? Because Jesus already did. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Because Jesus already did. And do you catch how Moses talks about the sea? But if you looked back in Romans where he's quoting this, he talks about death. But for the Hebrew, the sea and death were not really disconnected from each other. A little, little tangent there, but kind of fun. A lot of the myths of the world pick up on this as well. Uh, they borrow from our religion all the time. In any case, the point is, you are not going to get to heaven on your own. You are not going to beat the grave on your own. That is not what he's asking you to do. But the word that you are to be is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The name of the Lord is salvation. They called him Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. The word commandment in the Bible doesn't only mean what you must do, and that is such good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the everlasting law of faith. It is the commandment of your impending resurrection. It is the statute that God has written into his own hands with his blood for you. Oh, it's good stuff. Back to Romans chapter 10, if you would, back on page 946 where he continues to say then what this does to you. Because if you confess, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, hear that word will be as a promise that's here already. Yes? Salvation is now. Immortal life has begun. We're not waiting for anything other than the resurrection of our bodies. But all the rest of it is already here. And how is it here? It's in your heart and in your mouth. So that when I say Christ has died, you say Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Why do I do this? Why have I started teaching us to have this call and response? It's not just because it would be cool if we had 15 of these and I could throw them out like softballs and hit every one. That would be cool at the March for Life, wouldn't it now? But it's so that you become convicted about certain words that belong to you. That you don't just sit there and like 
listen to the entertaining guy. You know, I, God be praised. I had someone say to me after the sermon yesterday, that was energetic. I don't care. That's not why I'm doing this. What I want to hear is, that woke me up. I believe that. I needed that. Say it again, preacher. That's what I want to hear. Because I want the word to be in your mouth and in your heart. I know it can be. I know it will be. But I also know we live in times that are set on dampening that. There are so many messages. You think it was an accident that the devil has allowed this many messages to be in your face all day long? It's not an accident. He's trying to drown you out with noise. Yeah. But the word is promised, again, to be there and stronger. So again, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So that the scriptures say, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Kind of tangented there at the first service on the word shame. It's probably worth doing again here. I got to watch my time a little bit. I would contend that the greatest pandemic we are facing in the United States is a pandemic of shame. And it's because we have no honor as a people. We have very little integrity. You know, you talk with your friends and neighbors that disagree with you politically and you're like, they're crazy. It didn't make any sense. No, there's no integrity. People don't have to hold to the same thing this moment that they hold to next moment. They do whatever they want. And because that creates shame that they won't face, they have to go harder to try not to face the shame. They have to do more and yell louder. They want to shout down their shame. All of those people outside of the Supreme Court screaming about how they love killing babies. And people said that stuff. What are they doing? They're trying to shut up their own shame. It won't work. The problem, though, is that Christians have also kind of fallen prey to this means of suppressing the shame and trying to make it go away by living the life we think is right. And that, again, won't work. We have shame because by nature we have no integrity. When I judge you, I use a different bar than when I judge me. That is because of the shame I've inherited from Adam, which makes the promise that all who trust in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame all the more powerful. Because again, it begins now. Am I saying you can live a life where you never feel shame again? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying you can live a life where you own your shame? You're like, oh, that's shame. I kind of deserve it even. Oh, but Jesus died for that. Oh, see that? That's much better than, I have no shame. I have no shame doesn't make it go away. Jesus takes it. He takes it as you feel it. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Again, the emphasis this is for all mankind. Three guys got off the boat. They were all sons of one man. This is for all mankind. There is no distinction. The same Lord is the Lord of all. There's one king. His name's Jesus. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him, those riches is not money. 
Sure, God's going to give you money. You got to buy your food. It's going to happen. But that's not what he is really worried about. The riches and the wisdom of the immortal God is peace of conscience, freedom of spirit, conviction of a future that you know will be because he is risen. Hallelujah. For everyone, verse 13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, verses 14 through 16 are very famous if you go to the seminary. I'm not sure. You know, having gone to seminary and and had them driven into my head a certain way, I don't know how much the average pew-sitting Bible reader kind of has these verses in their head. But at the seminary, they're used to emphasize what we preachers are supposed to go and do. I'll just read it to you. How then will they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? Right? How can you pray if you don't believe in Jesus? And how are they to believe in him, Jesus, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so, of course, we're sitting there in seminary and they're like, look, see, that's what you're going to go do. Isn't this great? That's usually the reading that they'll have on call night. And it's fine that that's there. But what I want to convince you of today is that that's not really a text about preachers. Preachers exist. They need to exist. They're part of the institution of the church. But that's not Paul's main point here. His point here is that the church has the word of God and that the only way anybody else ever hears the word of God is that it's not only in our heart, but it's on our mouth too. So how will we confess if we never read the Bible? That word sent there, unless they are sent, it's the word apostle, unless they are apostled. Now, I'm not saying that preachers aren't sent. They are sent. That's why we call the divine call the divine call. But what is his point here? His point is that the Holy Scriptures are written that you might hear them, read, learn, mark, inwardly digest them. So by the patience and comfort of that holy word, you might confess and never hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life. And in that life as church... As congregation coming together, assembled around that word that goes into your ears, down into your heart, rattles through your mind, and comes back out your mouth, other people, those ones that you could wish yourself damned that they would be saved, those ones that he says, how do you say it, his heart's desire to God is that they would be saved, other people will hear and believe. And I contend to you, both members of St. Paul especially, but also all guests that far more powerful than deciding we're going to go do a bunch of mission is just actually talking to each other about Jesus. You start talking to each other about Jesus, talking about the sermon out there. Hey, Pastor Fisk said this. Do you believe that? Ask that. Ask that. Do it. Talk to each other. That will grow Christ's church. The right number, the right people, the ones he's calling, they're going to hear. They're going to come and they're going to believe. Because of the sharing of the word among us. And you who have children, all the more your task and duty with your sons and daughters. To preach to them, to proclaim to them the good news that makes your feet so beautiful. Now, should I, after service, kind of sit up here? I'll take my shoes off for you. You want to come, want to come look? I don't, the point, really, is the feet that are pierced as they're nailed on the cross, 
the bringer of the good news of salvation as he dies for you. But the point also is that that same guy, the night he was betrayed, took off his clothes, put on a robe, got a basin of water, and washed his disciples' feet. Not because it was baptism, although it certainly pointed to it. And as Peter then says, then wash my whole body, he says, oh no, you're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So that your feet are beautiful now in God's sight, equipped with the gospel of peace. Now, gospel, good news. I I know you've probably heard it said before. The word gospel means good news. You're like, okay, but isn't it a kind of weird word? Gospel? Why does it mean good news? What's the root of the word gospel? English is funny like that. It's built of like four different languages that kind of basically people groups that conquered each other. So you had like a high and a low where the low spoke a common language, like say German, and the high spoke an elite language, like say French. And over a hundred and some odd years, it kind of mashed together a little bit. And then someone else conquered and they did it again. And you got Welsh in there, you got Norse in there, there's a whole bunch of stuff. The the end of this then is that our roots don't all work (laughs) and they don't line up. And so we have these words that we know, but they don't make sense if you think about them. And, And gospel is very much one of these words. Why does gospel mean good news? Now, I'm going to tell you, I I just learned this one this week. I'm super excited about it because it takes a word that I love, but I didn't think I was allowed to use, and it lets me use it now, all right? But that's the second word. The first word is just the word good. The G-O in gospel is good. It's connected to the German word gut. (laughs) That sounds like good, right? And, And that's then also connected to the German word Gott, which means God. So our words in English, both good and God, are connected to the same roots. Yeah? So the gospel is the, is the good something or the God something, originally good. Now, the second word you know, it's the word spell. Is that another L? It's a spell. And if you know your Christianity, you're like, but aren't spells bad? The answer is yes. But this is the good spell. It's God's spell. Did he cast it like a witch? No, he spoke it into existence. And it's more powerful than any charm any human has ever come up with. But for that very reason, all the more are you blessed when you speak God's spell. His saving spell. Which is the history of of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, a story that surpasses all story, a myth to put all myths to death because it is no myth at all. How beautiful then are your feet again, made that way by this spell of the good God. Now verse 16 says, but they have not all obeyed the good spell. And on this, we have to do a little work on that word obeyed. I mean, how do you obey? Don't respond this time. How do you obey he is risen? I mean, in here, I suppose you obey it by saying it again, but that's not really obedience. How do you obey I forgive you? You can't do it. So so obey here, it's not that the word that's in the Greek, hupakuo, can't mean obey. It can. It's that the word obey has changed its meaning over time to become more legalistic. So if you heard the word obey 200 years ago, it wouldn't have all the legal overtones 
It would be more connected to the word here. In fact, you might even remember Bugs Bunny, or I forget where he got this from somewhere, you know, uh, I hear and obey. He's like, got the genie cap on. No one remembers that, probably. He's like talking to the cave. Yeah, okay, you remember. Thank you. Anyway, uh, it's from like, not Aladdin. It's from some, some uh, uh, Near Eastern myth. But I hear and I obey. The reason they say that isn't because they're two different words. It's the same word. To hear, to rightly hear, is to be under the word you heard. And so really, to translate it in modern English here, what he is saying is not all have believed, not have heard and understood, not all have received the good spell. And that's his point that we really want to focus more on than the obey problem, is, and this is the point all the way through this section, does the word of God fail when people don't believe it? Does that mean the word of God was not powerful enough? And to amplify this problem, not to dismiss it and make it go away, to amplify it, he's going to quote Isaiah. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Well, isn't Isaiah the great Old Testament prophet? Didn't everyone believe in him? No. In his own day, he was not believed much at all by most of the people he was sent to. In fact, the entire northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed because they refused to believe what he said. Now, Hezekiah did listen to him. That went pretty well. It's a cool story. But again, what's Isaiah's experience of Christianity? Nobody believes. That's his experience. We're alone. We're small. The way is narrow. If you find it, that's Isaiah's experience. So then, though, Kind of based on this point, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is something to emphasize, but I've already said it a bunch then. Where is your faith from? Is it because you obeyed? Is it because you chose? No, it's because you heard. You heard. What made you hear? Why are you different? You're not. Except that the Holy Spirit has chosen you. He has elected you. He has reached down from heaven and grabbed you, period. But why not other people? Ah, see how it goes? Back and forth we go. We get good news, and what we want to do is complain. Want to blame God. Want to talk back to the potter. As if the clay has some means to doing this, why not others? The answer remains because they chose not to. Does that make the word of God fail? Oh, see the circle? No, the word of God has not failed. The word of God has come to you. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of conviction. And in this then, the word of God not failing, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? That is, is there anybody out there who has not had a chance? That's the question. Is there anybody out there who hasn't had a chance? He says, indeed, no, they all have. For, he quotes the psalm, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So, Paul insists with that quote that you believe that every human being has had the chance to be saved, as if it's about chance. Every human being has had the word of God come to them in such a way that nobody will ever go to hell unjustly. And the word of mercy continues to come to those who don't deserve it to justify we ungodly. Now, if you look back at where this psalm is talking about, it's quite interesting The word that has gone out to all the earth is the stars. It's the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God. How do the stars teach the word of God? That's a fascinating question. I'm not going to chase it too hard, but we'll give you the simple answer. You can know 
because there's a creation, that there's a creator, and that you belong to him. That alone is enough justice to send you to hell for rebelling against him. Now, I think we can go a little further than that, and we can know for certain that the day that Noah got off the boat, he had the gospel. And so he spoke it to his sons. And if one of his sons rejected it, and so his son rejected it too, uh, that's not Noah's fault, that's not God's fault. That's the guy who rejected his fault. What you see in the Old Testament is a history of God continuing to come back to us after all of us have rejected it and restarting it again. So he gives the fullness. It's believed for a while, but then weakly dissipates. He comes back, he gives the fullness again, restarts it. It's believed for a while, and then weakly dissipates. This happens with Noah. This happens with Abraham. This happens with David. This happens in Solomon's own life. This happens with Hezekiah. This happens with Josiah. This happens with Jesus. This happens with, well, Martin Luther. It's not as though the word of God has failed. The word is here. We continue to fail in our rejection of it, but you're hearing it today because God refuses to let it die. And even though we want to kill it, he keeps sending more life. Now, verse 19 is going to say, this is actually, uh, how do I say this? This is like a really key point if you're worried about the election thing. What he's going to say is that he actually lets it uh, collapse. He lets it get broken. He lets it get rejected in order to make it believed by others. So when a man says, I won't believe it, God's like, fine, I'll harden you so that somebody else will believe it. By my condemnation of you, it will spur a reality that makes others believe. This is where that word remnant is so important. He is always saving the remnants. And when the hardened are rejecting him, they always think it's going to destroy what he's doing. But instead, he turns it so that it saves others still. Again, this is what verse 19 is going to say. But I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Those three quotes are meant to go together as an argument. And that argument is that because you don't believe, I'm going to go to someone else to make them believe, which should make you believe. But there are people who I try to make believe, and they just won't. They are contrary. And now in our context 9 through 11, Paul is saying this defines or explains the experience of the Jewish people following the resurrection of Jesus. When a remnant of them were baptized and were the foundation of the early Christian church, and yet where a far larger and powerful percentage chased St. Paul all over the Mediterranean empire, the Mediterranean world, not empire, all over the Mediterranean world trying to kill him so that he wouldn't talk about Jesus. That's how stubborn they were. It wasn't just good enough for him to go somewhere else and believe. They had to stop it altogether. Because of that, to this day, the religion of Judaism is most defined as the rejection of Jesus Christ. You can find Jews who don't believe God exists. They still reject Jesus Christ. It's kind of crazy. Huh? 
This is not to say that the Jewish people are either good or bad. To this day, you can find a remnant of Jewish bloodline people who confess that Jesus is the Christ. What should we really take from this is not what about the Jews, it's really what about us? And especially as we who 2,000 years down the road have had to go through more than one reformation to keep from losing it all and find ourselves in something of a plague of disinformation about all manner of things where you're supposed to believe all manner of things except for what the Bible says and they'll scream at you and yell at you and threaten you if you do not believe these things, what should we do then? We should believe all the more. We should know that for such a time as this, God has put you right here to be the reformers of your life, your family, your congregation, and your world. Not by going out with a sword, but by going out with a word that you know can never die. By being confident that that word has you, that it's grabbed your heart, it's grabbed your mind, it's competent to make you stand, and so you shall. That he who has begun a good work in you is going to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And that means today. That means he is risen. That means Christ has died. That means that you may walk out of here today with your head held high. Knowing that it's not over yet, but that it is finished. In the name of Jesus.